Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Hello and welcome. We're having new conversations here on How She Really Does It, and this is season nine and episode two with my good friend Michelle Woodward. She's an executive coach and also just a very grounded person. Um, I love the way she thinks and the way she moves through the world. So I'm so excited to have these conversations. And this is our second interview or second conversation out of eight that we're going to be having. And today we're going to be talking about managing a crisis. Michelle, hello there. Hello. So managing a crisis, right? This is something that can resonate with everybody because we all have them, even though we, you know, I think there's sometimes this belief of once I accomplish X, I'm going to be in the promised land and there won't be crises anymore, but there just are. Things happen in life. Isn't that right? I would say Ebola. (laughs) That's, you know, I mean, I mean, really, you cannot, uh, you cannot plan for something like Ebola. You know, you can't plan for something like, uh, you know, we had a couple of years ago, you know, a huge storm that knocked power out for, for six days. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing you can do is say, oh, good, I have water. You know, I have, I have the ability to kind of keep things going. But you never know when, when crisis is going to happen. That's why it's called crisis. Mm-hmm. And so how do you manage crisis? Extremely well. How's that? No, I, I, I think what, there are a couple of steps that I think anybody needs to consider when you find yourself in crisis, which is to first of all, you know, like taking from the military, is there something that I need to triage? You know, if it's kind of like you're in a car wreck, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sadly, those kind of things happen. But if you're in a a car wreck, what's the first thing that needs to be, that needs to happen? It may need that mean that you have to get out of the car. Um, It may mean you need to stabilize somebody, you know, so in any crisis, what needs to be done right away? Mm-hmm. to 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 just stabilize the situation. And then when you have time to be really reflective, there's so many things to reflect upon, such as, um, well, sometimes people get in crisis and they have this feeling like this is more of the same. And so they bring, they bring kind of the memory <laughs> of previous crisis into this particular crisis, make it a lot bigger than, than the original than the real causal crisis mm-hmm. because they have all this other stuff that they're bringing in. So to really make sure I am giving attention to the crisis that's at hand, I'm not re- reflecting on all the crises I've ever had that have been somewhat similar to this. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally know that. I mean, I think the other part is, is that um, don't bring in other people's stories. Like for me, my family of origin stories when I'm in a crisis, because that was their story and that's how they did it. It doesn't mean that that has to continue on in my story. You can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like I, my, um, my maternal grandmother, um, is somebody that I, I look to for an example of resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was widowed in 1937 with six children. Wow. And she was living in the Dust Bowl. She was living in Oklahoma. And this wonderful woman also had her master's degree. In 1922, she got her master's degree. Wow. And so I think about how she held her family together in the midst of just, you know, really difficult, dire situation, you know, how they all went on to college. Um, and so I look at her like, oh, I sometimes I think, well, what would she have done? What would B have done if she was in the situation I'm in? And sometimes that can be really inspiring. But I got to live Michelle Woodward's life, not, not B's life. Mm-hmm. And so there's that separation. Okay, okay, is there something I can learn here? Yep. But, but this is not my, my grandmother's life to live over. Yep. I think that's that really important thing, that separation. Like, what are the nuggets that I can take from this? Right? And there were some beautiful things that of learning opportunities that I had from my, you know, growing up that had developed huge strengths in myself that maybe my parents didn't have. 
right? And part of the reason that I developed those strengths was that I saw those areas that they didn't have and I really, really wanted them. Right, right. You know, I, I think about, I interviewed recently Nancy Duarte and um, it's, it's so it's incredible because she built this life in this business around what she did not have growing up as a kid. And her business is very values driven. Her family life was very values driven because those are the things that, she, you know, she didn't know what she wanted and she figured out these are the things that I want and how can I move towards that? And so sometimes I think knowing what you don't like is a great way to help you figure out what you like or what you want to create. That's, that's at least what I think. So I agree. And you know, it's, it's so, it's so interesting because you know, values uh, work is one Mm -hmm. of the key elements of the work that I uh, do with people, but it's, it's kind of interesting to me that folks find themselves in a crisis and often they go to that reflexive story that stuff like this just keeps happening to me. Mm hmm. And I always say that when stuff like this keeps happening to me, you got to look at what are you doing to continue to bring these kind of experiences to you? What lesson is there that you keep creating opportunities for you to learn? Because if you don't learn the lesson, it's going to keep repeating, right? If I constantly seek affirmation that that my life is screwed up, guess what? I'm going to keep finding it. <laughs> Right. And so instead of like a crisis happens, let's say the crisis is I get to the end of the month and I don't have enough money to pay my next month's rent. Mm-hmm. I can say, wow, why does, you know, gosh, I can't believe this keeps happening to me. Or I can say, what am I doing or not doing to create a situation where at the end of every month I don't have enough money? That's a more productive pursuit. Mm-hmm. Than to kind of, you know, shake your fist at the clouds and say, you know, why does this keep happening to me? Could be because I, I continually make decisions that don't support me paying my rent at the end of the month. And I think that question that you ask is, a, is an example of discerning, right? It's not judgment. It's, it's asking the question to figure out, okay, well, what can I do differently? Because right. I don't like this outcome that continues to happen. And, you know, it's not like a pull yourself up for your bootstraps kind of comment, but it's also not, not you know, getting rid of that. Uh, people like me don't get opportunities mm-hmm. like that. Or people like me who've had my life experience are always one down. Mm-hmm. There are always examples of somebody who's had your exact same life experience who's, who's making a different set of choices. Now, that being said, are there institutional biases? Bias- biases in the world, you bet. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you can't start your own thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't mean you can't create something like Nancy Duarte was saying, where, you know, that really serves your values. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but you don't have to live with uh, what I'm trying to say is you don't have to live under the burden of, you know, people who didn't grow up speaking English as a first language, never get ahead. That is not true. Mm -hmm. No, it's not true. And, and I think, um, you know, it, it goes back to that idea, like when you talk about mindset, it's the woe is me mindset, right? Which gets us stuck or gets in our own way. And, and I've been known to do that. And um, like one of the things about money, you know, I grew up in an economically challenged home and, um, and I just had the story that money doesn't happen to people like us. And I remember when I was an undergrad and I was, ta- I wound up, I needed to take a class because I was, I still needed to be a student. Um, and I was done basically with all my classes, but I wound up taking this personal finance class. And I remember Michelle walking into this class or walking out of this class going, holy moly, there are tools to create wealth. There's a way to go about it versus running out of money or, you know, living in the scarcity mindset. And I was blown away. And right there, that started to change my own trajectory because I realized that learning and practicing and implementing were going to be the things that were going to change it. You know, now at 42, I can say I'm really good with money. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was a time that I always wished that my parents were better at it. And I realized that because, you know, they had their own stuff with it, I was able to cultivate skill sets of my own that are huge strengths of mine now, right? 
um, because there was something lacking, kind of like with Nancy Duarte. But, um, you know, and so like in the crisis of, you know, do I have enough money? You know, learning about how, what I can do to improve my situation was a huge key to manage that crisis. Can I get on a soapbox for sure. 23 seconds? So, so, you know, there is a lot online, a lot of messaging online that, that there is some secret <laughs> to, you know, make seven figures in six weeks, kind of, you know, do take this class and you'll live an abundant life mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And it, it really it drives me to distraction. It makes me so mad because a lot of times it's, it's there, there are, there's real, no real learning there. It's just this, you're kind of buying hope, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, and, and the reality is, is that to, to become wealthy, whatever wealth looks like to you, but to become wealthy, what you need to do is get out of that lack mindset, you know, be open to possibilities, be brave and be responsible. Mm-hmm. And those are not necessarily the messages we get in popular culture, the way to be successful, you know, Mm -hmm. but I do think it's much more tortoise than hare. Mm -hmm. You know, it's much more, I'm just like going on a diet or changing Mm -hmm. the way you eat. I don't even like the word diet, but changing the way you eat, Mm -hmm. you know, you you start by choosing more vegetables. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if you find this, but, um, there are times, whether it's with my clients or with my parents, I'm, I'm talking them off the ledge, right? Because they, you know, whether it's the overnight success, you know, and or their kid becoming transformed or them losing weight rapidly or, you know, any of this stuff. I, I always talk about, I mean, because there's so much of that inundated in our culture. So whether it's weight loss, you know, you stand in the grocery aisle and there's all this messaging that's coming off of the magazines while you're waiting to check out, right? Here's the secret. This is the secret food to weight loss, right? Here's the secret to building wealth on, you know, the cover of the financial magazines. Um, and then what are we inundated with daily on Facebook? And, and I agree with you, this overnight, this quick fix it takes practice and it takes, it's, you know, and I always say, well, you could have quick results in weight loss. You know, are you, do you want to go to extreme deprivation? Right. And it's like, do you, you know, yes, you could have high returns in investment. You may have to be willing to have higher risk and invest in more junk stuff. Right. So what is the, you know, that's, that goes back to the tortoise and the hare. Where, What's the process that you're willing to go through? Is it something you're looking for really quick and short term or are you looking for something that's more sustainable? Right. And, you know, I don't know that anybody sold a magazine saying this is going to take time and work. (laughs) You know what I mean? And that's and but but we all have this hope, you know, this hope that that finally we're going to figure this out. And and what it what it often takes is, you know, focus, discipline, discipline. realizing that it's possible. You know, it's so funny. I've um, had my own business actually since 1997. And there are peaks and valleys in owning your own business. There are times when the money is just flowing in the door. And there are times when the money is not flowing in the door. And, you know, I could and have in the past totally freaked out in the, the times when when the money is not flowing through the door. But I found that that actually keeps the money away. Mm-hmm. And the only, the best thing that I can do is just trust that I've, you know, I've very consistent on my business development. I've done good work in the world. You know, I have a lot of people who could re- recommend me. And if I feel like I need to generate business, I know exactly what I have to do to bring clients in the door. Mm-hmm. And Usually within a week of like a a big contract ending, like yesterday, I found out a huge contract is going to end at the end of the month. You know, three new opportunities come through the door, but it's partially because my energy is not panicked energy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm experienced enough to know, well, this is interesting. That's kind of usually what I say. Well, this is interesting. I wonder how this is going to resolve. This is going to be kind of fun to watch. Mm Mm-hmm. And then my energy is not clingy, graspy. I don't, you know, send around panicked emails saying, oh my gosh, you got to send me referrals because I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> you know, and, and it all tends to work out. 
Well, and that's, you know, you've evidence you've created, right? Because you've been doing this business and you understand that. And it sounds like, you know, as you talked about earlier about the steps there, you know, you triage, right? Is there something that you need to triage right away? And, and then, you know, not carrying the story of other experiences forward. Like this is, this is the existence of the situation. Right. It's like the example that I often give to clients is, you know, if you're mad at your boss and you come home and kick your dog, your boss doesn't know that, but the dog knows it, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's so much better if you're really ticked at somebody, be ticked at them. You know, don't not just because it's easier to be ticked at your dog or your children or your spouse. It's not appropriate to lay that responsibility on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So is there another step that you had to managing a crisis? Because you had said, and then I interjected, um, is there something I need to triage, be reflective? And then start, and then so say, okay, so this situation is divorced from all those other situations. Maybe there's something I can learn from those situations. You know, maybe there's something I can bring to this experience from there. That is totally fine. But I'm going to recognize this as this experience that I'm in right now. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to begin to see how I can unravel or create a a going forward strategy. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm in pain, you know, if I'm like, I recently had meniscus surgery because Mm -hmm. I blew out my meniscus. Right. And I was in pain. Mm -hmm. So it's a crisis. I was in pain. What do I do? I go to the doctor. (laughs) Keep (laughs) it simple. (laughs) I could, I could call all my friends and say, oh my gosh, my knee really hurts. Do you think I'm dying? Is it bone cancer? You know, whatever. Or I can go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So I go to the doctor. The doctor says, wow, you need an MRI. It's consistent with a meniscus tear, but we need, so what did I do? I went for the MRI. Mm -hmm. MRI says significant to significant meniscus tears. I get surgery. Now, if I didn't have health insurance, I might think about the surgery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to, I like a good person, good consumer. I figured out what was going to be my out-of-pocket, what would my insurance cover, what was the time frame, was I going to need anybody to help me because you can't really walk the first couple of days. Mm-hmm. So you figure all that out, but you, you, you tend to that which is the most demanding demand, you do that first. Mm-hmm. And then what does that mean you need to do next? Well, and I think the other thing that's really important is you stay in a state of calm, right? You don't go into that drama because I know when I manage, and I do I do manage crisis in some ways really, really well. That's a good skill set of mine. Um, but I stay really calm. And, and it, it goes back to that energy component. Um, and it's so interesting because like this summer we had a swimming. I was gone. I was up in Portland. And um, it's a really long day because we have two meets. We do a double header, kind of like wow. what you do in baseball. So the day starts at, I don't know, 630 in the morning. And I think it ends at, you know, 1030 at night. So it's a long day. There's a little break in between. Um, the parents hate it. The kids love it. It's an awesome day. But there were some crises because the scoreboard wasn't working. I mean, here you go. You have technology and you have water and you have cables. Not a good, you know, an electricity. It's not, it's, it's the perfect storm for any crisis. And when I came back, of course, I heard all the stuff and all the problems. And and it was so funny because so often the parents, some of the parents would be like, well, and Pete, he was just really calm, you know. And and I was thinking, do you want a leader that's running around half crazed because things aren't working? You know, because then what does that do for the rest of the group? They're going to get really nervous, right. right? But when you have an understanding that water, electricity, and scoreboards don't work so well together, Right you're in an ideal situation for problems, then you just go, okay, what can we fix? Can we keep running the meat, you know, without having the the scoreboard up there? And But that state of calm, I think, is essential to that energy because it can affect all these other people that you may be leading or that you, you know, may be wrong. And a- absolutely. And so many people confuse drama with urgency, <laughs> yep. you know? And so because there's drama around it and my adrenaline is going, I, I create, I make it into a more urgent situation than it needs to be. The other thing that people do is they say, I should be able to fix this. Mm-hmm. Me, mm-hmm. me, little old me should be able to get up there and rewire a scoreboard. 
or whatever. Yep. You know, I should be able to fix this. You know what? Sometimes it's not yours to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great thing I learned as a parent. You know, is it my child or my child children would come home and they'll say so and so was mad at me or, you know, such and such happened and blah, 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 blah. And at first I try to fix, fix it, you know, jump in there and fix it. But then I realized that that was kind of cutting my kids off at the knees mm-hmm. and not allowing them to fix it. I would say, wow, that really sounds like something. What do you think you're going to do about that? Mm-hmm. And what that was, was kind of subtly telling my kids, I trust you. I believe in you enough that you're going to come up with a solution. And maybe we brainstorm solutions. Or maybe they said, you know, I've been thinking about that since I got on the bus. And here's what I think I want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. But even in the workplace that I, 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 I suggest people do this. It's not that people come to me and I need to come up with the solution. I need to empower them to come up with the solution because they're the expert often. They're mm-hmm. the expert on them for sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, empathy. Wow, that sounds tough. Mm-hmm. What do you think you're going to do about it? <laughs> it? means that I don't have to solve every single problem that comes their way. Because mm-hmm. some people really are super comfortable uh, offshoring their troubles, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to, that's not, not necessarily my, my work to do. Mm-hmm. Well, you've talked about hope a few times today. And one of the things that's so important is that to create hope is, is it's an ability to go through struggle, right? So if we want our kids to become hopeful, it's about holding that space as they process struggle versus going in and fixing it. You know, so a lot of times I see parents who go, oh, I just want my kid to be happy, right? Or I just want them to see the possibilities. And they're always fixing stuff. And what happens is they, the kids don't develop that their own evidence that here's a struggle. I'm, you know, I'm working on getting out of it. Maybe I can have my parents to help me process it, you know, and have some guidance, but I'm going to work through it. And then when I get out the other end, there can be that, that, um, yay me, right? Look what I just did. I can be proud of me, which then can cultivate hope for other times when, you know, things are hard, when there's another crisis that comes through, you can have hope because you can look back at this evidence of, hey, I've gone through some hard stuff. I know I'm resilient and I will move through this. It sucks. I may not want it, but I know I can, I can move through this. I mean, a lot of times I think parents um, do for their kid Mm -hmm. because it affirms the parent's primacy in the child's life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's so important for all of us parents to realize that we basically are uh, raising ourselves out of a job. (laughs) You know, our kid, your kids need you at different times in their life in different ways. And my kids at 21 and 18, well, I will always be their mother, Mm -hmm. but they need me in a different way. Um, when they're feeding themselves every day, when they're, when they're buying their own food, when they're making their own meals, when, when they're making decisions for themselves, they need me in a different way. So I basically raise them out of my, my job, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of people, can't, um, for whatever reason, they're so connected to their children in a way that may or may not be particularly healthy that, that they do for their kid to remind their kid that, the parenting role is so vital. Mm-hmm. The parenting role is vital because it's the parenting role. Well, I, I see it also of the idea of if I do for my kids, that, that proves my worthiness, right? It's that hustle for worthiness. I'm a good mom because these are the things that I do. And, um, but then what is the message that we're telling our kids if we're doing stuff for them, right? I, I can do it, but you can't, you know, you're not capable or I can do it better. And, and I think that part, you know, those are those little subtle messages that we want to be careful with, with our kids, because again, what is the, you know, person that we're trying to help develop? Um, and then I interviewed uh, Mike Riera last, earlier this year, and he said something, Michelle, that I will take with me forever. It's the m- best concept that I've ever heard. 
And can I share it with you? Sure. I'd love it. So he talked about when your kids are little, you're the manager of their lives. You manage every aspect, you know, essentially when they wake up, when they go to bed, you know, what they eat, if they get to have play dates, what schools they go to, right? You just really control their lives. And then he says right around like junior high, the tween time, they fire you. And it's not that they remove you. They just fire you. And if you're fortunate, they will rehire you back as their consultant. And I thought that was so brilliant because I see some of my friends who are really struggling because their kids are in high school and they're trying to manage their homework. And, and I hear the, oh, well, we have homework to do. And, um, and I don't take that on. That's my kids' homework. If they need help, we can come in and help them. But that, that's their responsibility. And, um, but I, and I think about it. How can I be a consultant? How can I help them? And how can I hold the, help them by holding the space or help them by helping them process? or providing the support that they need. But I don't want to lead. Does that make sense? Yeah, because, and, and, and you know, the, the healthy stance is, I don't need my children to validate me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's, that's not an appropriate parent-child relationship that they, that they have to validate me and my choices. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not me being a grown-up, you know, and, but, but uh, especially those of us, I was home with my kids for, for many years, and I've seen this among my friends, is that they, you know, they left their job as a corporate lawyer, mm-hmm. and they want the child to say, your sacrifice is worth it, but that's not the child's job. Mm-hmm. You know, the child's job is to grow up and be, you know, an independent individual. Mm-hmm. So, you well- know. Yeah. And I, I think, and you know, that becomes talk about a crisis, right? That becomes a personal crisis for the parent that does that when they leave this big job to go home and to quote, just be a mom. Right. right. And if their worthiness is tied to that job that they once had or to that, you know, W2 or 1099 that or tax return that said, Hey, I made X amount of dollars. Right. Right. And then they don't have that. And then, so then that energy gets spilled over into this home. And the kid's going, wait a second, you know, how did I become part of this equation for your own validation, your own personal validation? Right. Right. Have you ever read the book? Um, there's a book of fiction called uh, Like Water for Chocolate. It's a great book. It's uh, originally written in Spanish when uh, it's, you know, wonderful English translation. But it's the story of, of a, a Mexican family during the time of Pancho Villa. And uh, the, the young woman, you know, sort of coming of age and, and it's not until she's old enough uh, to fall in love that her mother tells her, oh, you, you're not allowed to fall in love. Your job is to uh, be my companion as I grow older. Mm-hmm. And so the, the young woman has fallen in love and she has to say, do I choose this kind of arbitrary thing to help my mother live her life for the rest of her life? Or do I marry the man I love? And it's sort of, it's, uh, I've always loved that book. It's beautifully written. But the, the kind of the concept is, do we want our children to live lives helping us live our lives? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to really free our children up to have lives of their own, which we can hopefully participate in, you know, it's one way or the other. Well, I say it goes back to my idea of the where we rooted, right? We're rooted in mm-hmm. scarcity when we want them to be part of our lives because we're afraid to let them go, or if they're not there, what else will fill us up? Versus when you're rooted in your own grounding, your well-being, then you you have this trust that there's enough that we can spend time together, and they can go live their their lives, and we can connect. And your value, your connectedness, will always be there, regardless of are they with you constantly. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So I've been an empty nester for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> three weeks of the best weeks of my life. You no. Know, so three weeks. And what was really interesting is that the first night that I spent without my kids under my roof, and of course they, you know, had gone to summer camp and done all those things that, that when that they do, but I, um, both of them called just to check in and it wasn't sort of a like, Oh, I hope mom's Okay. It was a compassionate caring for another human being. But my children don't worry, is mom going to have enough to do without us there? Mm-hmm. My, my children just out of compassion said, hey, so how's it going tonight? That's the kind of people I wanted to raise. Mm-hmm. And it was so moving to me 
that they were compassionate people. It wasn't inappropriate, right? It wasn't inappropriate caring for their mother. It was, hey, we know this person is, you know, this is the first night that she's staying by herself. And I just thought, you know, that is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago you saying to me, you know, I think about what is the kind of relationship I want to have with my kid when they're 25, when they're 30, when they're 45, right? And what are the seeds that I want to plant to have that kind of relationship then? And I always love that because I think about that like, okay, when the the small choice that I'm making now, am I planting a seed that's going to bring me towards that? I mean, we don't really know, but is it heading it more in that trajectory or is it heading in a different trajectory, right? And it sounds like you, the seeds that you planted developed this caring, compassionate relationship and they were able to check in with you, not out of obligation, but because of this connection that they have with you. Right. And, and because they can have that relation, that connection with me, it really bodes well that they'll be able to have that healthy connection in relationships, Mm -hmm. you know, with whomever they decide to marry, um, or whoever they date, you know, it's like, to me, it's just sort of like a, a nice little marker, um, that they're, they're, you know, they're, they're good, empathetic people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think, um, when we talk about, you know, managing crisis. And, um, you know, you talked about the importance of family, you know, family dinners, Mm -hmm. you know, even in a crisis to hold on to the values that you have Mm -hmm. to say, Hey, you know what, this is a really, this is a really tough time for us, for our family, you know, but we're still going to have dinners together. Mm -hmm. You know, mom may be in the hospital, grandma may be in the hospital, you know, dad may be, you know, traveling the world with the Olympic team or whatever, mm-hmm. but we're going to continue to do the things that we know as a family are important to us. That's so such important grounding for a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when, you know, my daughter hit kind of junior high and we had, we wound up having these two different dinner schedules because my kids practices, one was early, one was late. And so how do you eat when they, and then there's an overlap. And so my younger daughter and I would eat dinner together and then when my older daughter came home at like 8, 8.30, I wasn't hungry at that point, but I was deliberate about going out to the kitchen and sitting down with her while she was eating dinner right. and making that connection. Because really, I mean, it's 15 minutes, right? Now, and at, and Unless it's Thanksgiving, in <laughs> which case it's 12, you know, it's like 2.3 seconds, you know. So it's it's not that long. I mean, and my days are long and, and, there, and there were times that I just wanted to be in my room and go to bed. But that that value of connection, of having that belonging for my family, of creating the safe nest, right? And also, what is the relationship that I want to cultivate? It was about me showing up to that table, even though I had already eaten, because it doesn't matter that I need to eat. All that mattered was that I connected with her. Right. Right. And it mattered that she didn't have to eat alone. Yeah. And, yeah. Feel left out of, of the family um, activity. So, you know, I think managing crisis is something that, um, you know, we should actually have, there should be classes in school about how to do it because when it happens, it can be so, can shake your sense of self and it can, you know, shake everything that you've ever known, but you can kind of move through it with, with focus and purpose and there, and thereby minimize the kind of the impact, the impact on it. And again, the, you know, we talked about shoulds before, but if you, if you have that idea that should, you know, if, if I play my cards right, I had a friend of mine once say, you know, I, um, uh, you know, here I've been a clean eater my whole life and I get <laughs> breast cancer, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. and like, as if she was only clean eating to, to, you know, give her a booster shot against cancer. It helps, but it's not a fail safe, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, it, it's like, Crisis is going to happen. And someone once said to me, it's not how you fall, it's how you bounce. Mm-hmm. You're going to fall. How are you going to bounce? I, I think that's so important because we will, we will fall. And how do you bounce? How do you move through it? And, and we can't protect ourselves. I think sometimes that's why we will dim our light or not show up because we think, hey, look, if I, if I don't take too much risk, I'm going to be protected, right? If I do this, it's going to be fail safe and then I won't have breast cancer. And there's so many things that happen that, you know, they happen. And how are you going to come out of it is the most important thing. And something that you keep talking about is about energy. 
And I want to go in and talk about that because I know what you're meaning by that, but the listeners may not. But about this idea of energy and crisis, can you elaborate on that? Well, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. You know, so I have this hundred units of energy theory, which is, uh, which I think all of that is all capitalized. Hundred units of energy theory is all capitalized, but it's that, that we have a hundred units of energy to spend every day. You had a hundred yesterday and they're all spent. You have a hundred tomorrow. You can't borrow. You can't save up and you can't borrow. You've got a hundred units to spend today and how you decide to al- allocate them is often the the determinant of, of what you get accomplished or how successful you are. So if I put if I put 40 units of my energy a day against being panicked, that's 40 units of energy that's not going to move me towards, you know, some sort of happy conclusion or towards some sort of solution to the problem. So there's that sort of energy you know, that's your actual energy. But there's also sort of the quality of the energy that you bring into a circumstance. So it's kind of what everything that you and I have been talking about. If you bring in a certain kind of fatalism, you know, this will never work, we're doomed, you know, um, I'm, I, I'm never going to get ahead, um, that energy becomes sort of predictive. Um, if I think I'm never going to get ahead, I probably will never get ahead. If I have the kind of energy that, you know, as Carol Dweck, who I know you've had on the show mm-hmm. before, you know, talks about this, this kind of learner's mindset or growth mindset in that going into this, I have no clue how this is going to end up. I have no clue how this is going to shake out, but, but I imagine it's probably going to work to be something kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it, that gives you a lot more centered groundedness mm-hmm. in handling any kind of crisis than like, oh my gosh, we're probably all going to die. <laughs> you know, I probably have osteosarcoma instead of just a meniscus tear, you know, all that stuff. Um, th- that all is so dependent on the energy you you choose to bring into the space. And my point is, is it's always a choice and if the energy you're bringing into the space is not moving you towards where you want to be, then just make a different choice. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds so simplistic, but it's really so true. You just make a different choice. You know, the the energy thing, I think, is probably the thing. I, I use that all the time. You know, instead of I used to measure things by how much time do I spend, right? And the more time I spent on something, the more worthy it was, which is all a bunch of crock. Um, but you know, how much energy, and then sometimes just realizing that my energy spent, what can I do to replenish or what, what do I need to do to take care of myself at this point? Right. And, and what does that look like? And I use energy all the time and noticing who are the people who can drain my energy, noticing who are the people that I get energy from being around, um, which is a little bit different than uh, I think your concept, but just really paying attention to that and also noticing like being responsible, like Dr. Jill Pulte, Jill Bolte Taylor was on my show and she talked about, you know, when she had her stroke and that, you know, people being responsible for the energy that they brought into the space because mm-hmm. she could feel it, even though she was thinking a coma at the time from her stroke, she could feel it. And so sometimes we do think, there is this cultural belief of if I just hustle, if I if I create a lot of drama, then it's going to show that I really, really care, right? Or I'm really trying hard. And I and I have done that. I've played that game and I was always exhausted. And that's why I was having a hard time with forward movement because I was expending a lot of energy. And the things that I've really worked on over the last 10 years is how can I be calm? And it's not about that hustle, right? But what can I be calm? How can I be grounded so that I can actually triage, so I can make decisions to the best of my capabilities at that time. And something you said, I think is just so vitally important. And that is that, um, knowing when you're depleted, Mm -hmm. you know, currently a lot of people feel like, you know, they should be able to be available 24 seven and, (laughs) you know, that they should be able to, uh, you know, just go, 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 go all the time. But to be able to have the self-preservation or self-care to say, wow, I am exhausted. Mm-hmm. I am going to take a nap. That is not the sign of a, 
of a slacker or somebody who's never going to get ahead in the world, that's actually the sign of a really healthy human mm-hmm. who says right now, you know, or, uh, you know, I've got the flu mm-hmm. and I've got the flu and I'm going to take the day off because I want to get better. Where there are people who like, I've got the flu, but I'm going to soldier through it. I'm going to muscle through it because that's what the cool people do or that's, you know, <laughs> whatever. And then, and then what happens is, they get they grow more and more depleted and then they grow more and more burned out and then and then it's kind of gets beyond the point of no return where you know they're they're burned out on their career because they haven't been able to to calibrate and say you know what right now my energy is just not in this um so I'm going to step back you know I would like my surgeon to say that mm-hmm. you know I've got the flu I don't know that I can focus as well as I probably you know, would like to, to execute this surgery. So let's postpone it till, you know, Thursday. I would say, thank you. (laughs) You know what I mean? As opposed to, oh my gosh, what a slacker. I would Uh like, thank you for telling me, you Mm -hmm. know? Well, and it's that self-compassion, right? And realizing that we, we need to check in and where are we? I mean, last night I got home and I was just exhausted. I was done. There was no thinking. There was nothing. And I just knew that. And um, and one of the things that I like to do is I like to watch Thursday night TV. It's like my little playtime. It's fun. And so I watched a little bit of it. And then I went off to bed. I got a good night's sleep. And I'm, I'm ready to go today. Right. Um, but there was a time in my life that, you know, oh, my gosh, I can't watch TV. I should be working because that will prove my worthiness. Let me work through Thursday night. And the work a lot of times that I would do would not be very good. And so over the years, I've just realized that, you know, sometimes it can be a nap, it can be reading a book, or maybe sometimes it's, you know, watching a TV show that I really enjoy. And, and, and or, or it can be, you know, hanging out with friends or there's so many different things that can fill me up um, or give me a break that, that I just need from my day. So I think it's about knowing what works for you when you manage your energy. What works for me is really being, you know, in touch with my boundaries and not being afraid to put them in place, mm-hmm. um, you know, to and like you said, to dip into things that I know that give me energy. So it might be calling, you know, a close friend and just chatting. It may be taking a walk in the forest. I live next door to like a hundred acre, um, you know, old growth forest. And so, you know, walking in there or what, you know, I know the things that, that give me energy. I know the things that sap my energy and, and making sure that I know that if I'm truly at the end of my units of energy, that I don't actually, um, get myself to the point of being completely exhausted because it never helps me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I, I used to just keep running, 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 and then I would get sick. And one of the things with managing my energy is that, I don't really get sick. Like I might get small little colds, knock on wood. Hopefully that doesn't like, but um, I don't, you know, I don't get really, really sick because I can maybe notice something coming on and then I really go and take care of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I really focus on trying to get more sleep. And, 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 and the other side is it's just real life. I mean, there this week, my schedule was very full. It was very intense. And so part of me is now looking at, okay, what are some things that I can trim? What are things that no longer serve me? Right. right. And meaning and purpose, you know, if we've, if we've, any of us have confused meaning and purpose with being busy, then we're not really helping ourselves. So, you know, sometimes we'll make things harder than they need to be because <laughs> it somehow satisfies, well, I must be doing something important because I'm here 14 hours a day, mm-hmm. but we're actually not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's, it's doesn't, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really compute. <laughs> I sound like Spock. Doesn't that does not make logical sense? <laughs> so I have a question for you, Michelle. How do you get grounded? I think you, you know, you have the crap beaten out of you a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you really. I think what it takes is you have to have, you know, some big moments of complete loss of your your sense of self, uh, and then re- regrow your sense of self on your own speed. Um, when I look at people that I, that I admire who, who I feel like are grounded, it's usually that they've had some pretty tough knocks 
but they have processed through the tough knocks and have emerged in touch with their resilience, understanding who they are at their best, in alignment with their values and their priorities, their values and priorities, not another person's, not any shoulds, not any historical, you know, must haves, Mm -hmm. but really who am I at my best and how do I be that person more in the world? And I think, of course, the older you get, I'm 54 years old, which is, you know, older than some and younger than many. Um, I, I've had a lot of life experience and, and I've emerged every challenge from every challenge, you know, stronger. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't really, if challenges are going to come, it's just, for me, it's like, oh, good. There's something here for me to learn. Wonder, wonder what it's going to be <laughs> instead of like, oh my gosh. So <laughs> I think sometimes people look at me and they just go, you are so Pollyannish. Cause I just, I do look at it like, what can we learn from this? This is great. Right. Not that I really want to go through it sometimes, but what can we learn from this? Right. And that is so much better than having the little pity party that I used to have on myself of, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Woe is me. Um, But to learn from it and then I can, you know, to learn. And sometimes, you know, I do have that. I go, apparently I haven't learned this lesson quite enough because this is another opportunity for me to learn and practice. Um, So maybe, maybe I should get this one down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me that, um, you know, we sometimes we go out of our way to avoid Mm -hmm. those kind of challenges. Um, But, you know, you can't keep postponing it. No, not going to. not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no protection. It will it will come. Right, exactly. <laughs> it will come. Well, Michelle, thank you for talking about, you know, managing through a crisis and uh It's I my look- pleasure. And I can't I just can't wait to hear from people who are listening and who say, you know, they have a question or they say eureka or you know, it makes sense or it doesn't make sense or whatever. I just I I love that the idea that there are people out there listening that for whom, you know, this is going to prompt a lot of thought. I think that's wonderful. You know, and that's a great, uh, that's a great um, thing that you just said is that, you know, listeners do send us questions, right? If you have a question on something that we said, or if there's a topic that, you know, you're struggling with and you want to hear from us, send us questions. You can go to howshereallydoesit.com and there is a contact page. Click on that and send me a question and we'll take a look at that and we'll see if that's something that we can answer on the show. So I have Michelle for six more episodes. So do send them to us. Well, Michelle, thank you. Thank you. This is so much fun. I can't wait for the next six. All right. So I want to talk about hope a bit. And hope, it's really important that we understand what hope is and where it comes from. Um, In Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she talks about when she was shocked to discover that hope is not an emotion. It's a way of thinking or a cognitive process. And in very simple terms, she says that hope happens when we have the ability to set realistic goals. That's the idea of, I know where I want to go. And remember, there's that realistic goals, right? Not wild, audacious, hairy goals, but realistic goals. Then the next point is we're able to figure out how to achieve these, those goals, including the ability to stay flexible and develop alternative routes. So it's that voice of, I know how to get there, I'm persistent, and I can tolerate disappointment and try again. You know, my listeners or my clients will be used to or familiar with when I talk about having an agile mind, right? This is about letting go of that need for certainty, letting go of that blueprint that we all just can jump in. Like we want that certainty, right? But it's not about that. It's about figuring out how to achieve those goals and stay flexible and develop alternative routes. The other one, the other component is believing in ourselves. I can do this. You know, one of the things that I say when I'm going through a crisis is I'm resourceful because <laughs> that's true. It's really true. I may not know how the hell to figure this out, but I say I am resourceful or this is figure outable, right? The other day I had a crisis it was kind of a crisis. I lost paperwork of an employee's and I knew I had it. I just didn't know where. And I wound up not spending a lot of energy because I knew I had it. And I had a couple of ideas where it was. And the next day I was cleaning something up and I found it. 
And again, I managed that crisis. The old me would have been like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did this. The story, you know, the stories I would have had and I could already feel that draining inside of me. So I'll figure this out, right? I will figure it out. Let me trace back my steps. So hope is a combination of setting goals and having the tenacity and perseverance to pursue them and believing in our own abilities. And that's what Brene says. And she talks about how children most often learn hope from their parents. And children need relationships that are characterized by boundaries, consistency, and support. And so one of the things that I really have worked on understanding that it's about, and Michelle and I talked about this, right? Holding the space to provide the support to help them process, but not to step in to fix it. That becomes really important, right? We have this cultural belief that everything should be fun, fast, and easy. It's all about, you know, the Disneyland experience, overnight success. If it's not, you know, fat and fast and easy, then I'm on the wrong path. And I was recently watching an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert on Oprah, and then it's made it around on the Huffington Post. I'll actually click that link and put it in the show notes where she talked about like, if you are on the path that you were meant to be, be prepared. It's going to be really, really hard. And that's the thing is that that's not sexy. It's not glamorous, right? But Michelle and I were talking about this. It's the process that we come out of and we can have pride right? So when we think that it's not supposed to be hard or that we're not supposed to have crisis, you know, I invite you to be open to it. Not that we want to have it, but it's going to happen. You know, um, recently we've had just in our community, some crises um, with former athletes um, dying or getting cancer. And it was about how can we show up as a community? How can we show up as people? right? Because these were kids that mattered. And that's something that's really important to think about. One of the things that, you know, Michelle talked about, what she thought was important for, you know, managing a crisis. And I don't think we really address this, but I really think about in those two instances is who are your community? Who is your community? Who are the people who have earned the right to hear your story? Who are the people that can hold that space when you're going through something that's so hard, who's that person that you can call? And maybe it's a phone call at two at night, right? Those are the things that I think become really important when you can manage that crisis, knowing how you can ground yourself like Michelle and I talked about, and then knowing who the people are. So one of the things as I wrap up this show today, is I really invite you to think about, you know, who are your people? Brene calls it, who are your marble jar friends? right? Who are the people who've earned the right to hear your story? And here's another thing that's so important that I help my clients figure out is that it's not a one size fits all or one person can be there for every part of you, right? It's okay if maybe this is the person that you talk with about parenting your struggles. Maybe this is a confident at work, or maybe it's a mentor that you have that you say, hey, what do I really have to offer? You know, but that's a person that you've cultivated a safe place where you can show up and be vulnerable. You probably don't want to do that to a boss or to a colleague who's in that um, scarcity mindset and saying, oh, now I found their area of weakness, right? But this is the important part to be vulnerable. It's about being vulnerable with the people or the person who has earned the right to hear your story. And you get to determine, is this person safe? right? Is this a person that has earned the right to hear the story? Is this person not? And that those are the people that can help you as you go through a crisis. And sometimes it can also be a person that you meet on a golf course as you're going through the crisis of your child having cancer and you're out there, you're hitting some balls, you meet somebody and you kind of share what's going on and they turn to you and they say, how can I help you? You know, can I make you some dinner? right? There are people in this world. So connecting, who are the people that you can connect with? I think community is so, so important. We are hardwired for connection. We are hardwired for this. This is who we are. We want to belong. So when you can have a community, that can help you get through crisis. You know, you think about times, um, 
I, I think about, I'm from California. So in 19, gosh, I think it was 91 in the falls, October of 91, um, there were the Oakland Hills fires and how communities came together to house people who lost their homes or, you know, help give them stuff. People came together. People matter. You matter. Who are your people? And, and the thing is that if you haven't started developing that or cultivating that, you don't feel very connected. You know, I invite you to go back and listen to season nine, episode one, where we talk about building relationships, right? Aligning with people that are with that have values that are similar to yours, but not being, you know, only entrenched in that, right? They don't have to have the similar values, but who are the people that you want to connect with and want to build and foster relationships with? Because that can help you when you have those crises, right? That, that there's somebody that you can call and say, I'm going through this. It's really, really hard. Can you just listen to what I have to say, right? I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this, but I just need to be able to talk this through or whatever it may be. So for me, managing crisis is knowing who are my people, right? That's one part. And then the other part for me is about, you know, how can I get grounded? I'm really good in a crisis. Like I, that's probably my husband always joke, you know, we're really good at that midnight to six in the morning, not so night, but like, it's probably like midnight to three, you know, when the kid wets the bed or throws up or something like we just got it down. We get up, we strip the sheets, we get our kid in a shower. This is when they're little and it just kind of, there's, there's no angst. There's no yelling. It's, we just kind of do it. We accept it, right? We stay really grounded. We triage, you know, what's the most important thing that we need to do? And then what's the next and how can we make it work? And, you know, accidents happen, our kids get sick and we're not going to shame the child right? Because none of us will feel very good. It's not what we want to do in the middle of the night, but it's what we do because it's the commitments that we made that we're going to have a family. So when you go through this managing a crisis, the more you can name it and know what your process is and also evaluate and go, this is a good time to do it. Like right after the show, how do I manage my crises? Do I create a lot of drama? And why is that? Right? I used to do a lot of drama because I was hustling for worthiness. I was hustling for people's approval, right? I'm a recovering approval whore. Yes, I'm a recovering approval whore. And there are times that I can still notice that I'm trying to get somebody's approval, right? But it's about how can you be grounded so that you can move through this crisis and not over-identify with it that either you take on like your family of origins crisis and make it mean that or something that may have happened to you in the past right? Maybe you were in a marriage and your husband walked out on you and now you're in a new relationship and you're saying the same story of, oh, he's going to walk out because that's what people do, right? How can you move through this and separate this story from other ones so that you can be grounded, so that you can make decisions where you're rooted in a place of well-being or you're rooted in wholeheartedness, not in perfection, but in who you are. You're rooted in your values, so that's what I invite you to think about as we sign off for today. Some people are going to laugh when I say sign off, but as we end the show today is who are your people, you know, that can help you through crisis? What grounds you when you're going to, so that helps you move through the crisis and what is your way that you manage? The more you understand that, it simplifies stuff. That's why, you know, um, emergency action plans or firefighters or like when I was a lifeguard, we always trained that stuff when there wasn't the stress. That way, when, you know, maybe a kid was drowning or something was happening, we were ready to go. We had it ingrained in us, right? So this is a great time now when you're in this great place to go out there and practice and start to identify. And then later you can circle back and reflect throughout what doesn't work, tweak what you need to and practice again. All right. I look forward to hearing from you about this. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, 
lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so. Well.